I'm going to move about a, a little bit this evening, unusual for me. I don't usually preach from a text and uh, a passage and keep to that and uh, seek to um, bring forth the teaching or the meaning of that passage. But well, we're going to depart from that uh, usual way of doing things and we want to consider this evening three mountains in the scripture. Three mountains in the scripture. We read from Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2 and it says, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it, the mountain of the Lord's house. So I've entitled the message uh, Three Mountains Plus One. Uh, That's the mountain of the Lord's house. But we're going to consider these three mountains. First of all, the mountain, the mount of responsibility. Secondly, the mount of revelation. And thirdly, the mount of reconciliation. The mount of responsibility. Uh, We will begin there. And that is in Deuteronomy and chapter 9. Deuteronomy in chapter 9, which is page 207 in the Church Bibles. Deuteronomy in chapter 9. And here Moses is speaking, and uh, the actual name of the book, Deuteronomy, means the second law, or the second giving of the law. It is where Moses goes over the things which have happened to the children of Israel while they have been in the wilderness, uh, since they came out of the land of Egypt. And he speaks here of the giving of the law. And we're just going to look at a a couple of verses here uh, from verse 8. Also in Horeb, ye provoked the Lord to wrath, so that the Lord was angry with you to have destroyed you. When I was gone up into the mount to receive the tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant which the Lord made with you, then I abode in the mount forty days and forty nights. I neither did eat bread nor drink water. And the Lord delivered unto me two tables of stone, written with the finger of God. And on them was written according to all the words which the Lord spake with you in the mount, out of the midst of the fire, in the days of the assembly." And it came to pass at the end of forty days and forty nights that the Lord gave me the two tables of stone, even the tables of the covenant. And the Lord said unto me, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for thy people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten image. So here is a a mountain then, first a a mountain of responsibility. Responsibility because it was there that God gave the Ten Commandments. And as we uh, perhaps know those Ten Commandments, we recognize that they fall upon two tables uh, in two ways. First of all, of course, there were two tables of stone, two tablets of stone upon which the commandments were written. But they also pertain to two different parts. First of all, the first three commandments, interestingly enough, in Scripture numerology, three is the number of God. And the first three commandments pertain to God. Here we have, first of all, thou shalt have no other gods before me. That's the first commandment, and it is uh, very important. It is like a bookend of the commandments. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, because there is only one God. And uh, to have other gods before him is just to take our hearts and our eyes away from the God who has created us. 
The second commandment is, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. It goes on to say we should not bow down to them, but it is to make something of the creation, a God before him, and that we should worship it. It really covers everything in this world which God has created. People worship science in this day and age. People worship money. People worship people uh, and all kinds of different things. Uh, a graven image is an image, of course, which has been made. It is something which is set before us. But then all of the things which are set before us really in this day and age are things uh, which are graven to some extent or another. We're not to have a graven image. I find this interesting. First of all, when we consider no other gods before me pertaining particularly to the Father, uh, because the Father is the, is the God of heaven. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the express image of his glory. Uh, there is only one image of God, and that is Jesus Christ. And no one knows what Christ looked like. I find that an interesting thing. I have a theory of my own concerning that, uh, that, that no one could actually remember what he looked like at any point, uh, but that he revealed himself to them. But there was never any image made of Christ. In fact, in the Old Testament, God said, I never showed you any similitude of any kind that you would make an image which represented me. I never showed you anything that you could make so that it became a snare to you. And of course, as soon as there was something uh, which was made, which he gave to them, which was that serpent upon the pole, uh, which the people to, were to look at when they were bitten by the fiery serpents, that became a snare to them uh, and indeed was worshipped afterwards. But God gave no similitude of himself, save Jesus Christ. We have pictures of Christ, but they're not pictures of Christ. They are just pictures of people's imagination. I do find it interesting that when he walked on the road to Emmaus with two disciples, they didn't recognize him until suddenly their eyes were opened. And other times too, where Christ seems to have been unrecognized. Remember the Jews one day took him from the, uh, from the synagogue to the top of a hill to cast him down. And when he got to the top of the hill, he went all that way with them. Uh, because he wanted to make sure that they knew exactly what they were doing, that they were going to cast him down from the precipice at the top of the hill. And then when he got to the top, he turned and he walked through them, and no one stopped him. Strange. But we uh, know that we are not to make any graven image of God. And then the third of those commandments pertaining to God is, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And that seems to me to particularly pertain to the Holy Spirit, because... Jesus says that there is no manner of blasphemy which cannot be forgiven unto men except the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost. Because the scribes and the Pharisees said that Jesus cast out devils by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. So those are the three commandments pertaining to God. And then there are six commandments pertaining just to men. And these last six commandments begin with honour thy father and thy mother. And that I think is very important. Because it is there that we begin to understand our responsibilities. It is there we begin to understand what respect is. And it is our father and our mother who set that up in our lives. That we also might worship the God who has created us. And then uh, following that it says thou shalt not kill. The word kill really means, the, 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 it's really the word murder uh, rather than kill. Uh, kill is a bit of an overstatement because obviously you have to kill sacrifices and obviously to make them. Uh, but thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. 
against thy neighbour, thou shalt not covet. And that covetousness is the last, the other bookend of those commandments toward, uh, toward men. Uh, because covetousness surely is the beginning of all of these things. Where a, a person might covet their neighbour's wife. They might covet authority from their parents. Uh, they might uh, covet uh, the, the life of someone that they seek to take. Uh, they covet something before they steal it. Uh, and so on. And really here are these two bookends. Honour your father and your mother and thou shalt not covet. And these things are in between them. But there is another one which is like a pivot. And it's the one which has been cast aside today. I was saying this this morning, so we won't go back into it uh, too much tonight. But that is a kind of a pivot because it looks both ways. First of all, it looks toward God. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. To keep it holy, that in it we should worship the Lord. It says, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. It is the Lord's Sabbath. But then also it points toward men. Because it says, in it thou shalt not do any work, neither thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy maidservant, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thine ox nor thine ass, nor uh, thy stranger that is within thy gates. We are to respect the time that they need to have off during the week that they also might worship before God. So it points both ways. It's a pivotal to the Ten Commandments. So this first mount of responsibility is that God gives us commands that we are responsible to keep. And those commandments were given to us. And the scripture tells us this, that we are to serve him by keeping those commandments. But there is a substance to the commandments. These are the statements of the commandments. They're very clear. Lots of people don't like them. They don't like the first three particularly, uh, but some of the others also they don't like particularly either. But here there is a, a substance to the commandments and the, the scripture themselves gives that, that substance and Jesus picks it up and he tells the people who ask him, what is the great commandment? First of all then in Deuteronomy 6, 4, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And then again in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, that covers the first part of the law, the first three, or the first four really. And then the, the second in Leviticus 19 and verse 18, thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. And these are the words which Jesus selected from the Old Testament when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't say, uh, thou shalt have no other gods before me. But he said this, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets I don't know how much you read the scriptures the commandments are given first of all in Exodus chapter 20 but Exodus chapter 19 is so very interesting because there God speaks to his people and he says he's going to make them a nation of priests he's going to make them a people who, uh, who follow him who walk with him and who uh, will experience all the blessings of God upon them but no sooner are these Ten Commandments written upon the two tablets of stone 
that God has to say to Moses, Arise, get thee down quickly from hence, for the people which thou hast brought forth out of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They are quickly turned aside out of the way which I commanded them. And you see, the problem was with the people in this day, when they took this idea of the responsibility, they actually took the idea of responsibility. They actually thought to themselves, well, we're going to keep these commandments. But they didn't like the commandments. And they didn't love the God who gave the commandments. And the commandments were swiftly broken. And first of all, the first commandment, really, uh, which they had, was to make a graven image. While Moses was in the mount, they'd make a graven image of a calf, a golden calf. And they dance around it. And they say to Aaron, up, make us gods that will go before us. For as for this Moses, we know not what has become of him. How sad. And the responsibility, when we consider this mount of responsibility, what we are seeing really is the fact that we have all failed. We have all come short of the glory of God. We have all failed that, that commandment which God has given to us. We know the Lord Jesus seeks to hammer that point home. As he says well, concerning that commandment in, in Matthew chapter 5, and he says, you have heard it has been said, thou shalt not kill. But he says, if someone uh, hates his brother, then he is a, a murderer already. Uh, and he speaks of the adulterer. And that's John that says that. He, he speaks of the adulterer. Uh, if we look upon a woman to lust after her, you have committed adultery already in your heart. Jesus wants to ha hammer home the point that the commandments are there. That the person who is to keep those commandments needs to keep them completely without any failure whatsoever. But he says, but we fail even in the very thought. The very fact that we don't like someone. We have failed in that commandment. Thou shalt not kill. The fact that we look upon something that somebody else is, it, it belongs to someone else. And we desire it. We have broken the commandments. The fact that we commit adultery in our heart, we have broken the commandments. Jesus is saying it's much deeper. It's not just doing the things that are said here. It is, do you love the Lord? Do you love the Lord? Do you desire the Lord? Do you seek to walk with the Lord? Is the Lord first and foremost in your life? And what of your neighbor? Do you love your neighbor? Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. But he says, but I say unto you, love your enemies. Do we love our enemies? Do we have this overwhelming love for all? Do we do the things which God has given to us because we love him? And because we desire to please him? You see the... Jews, in so many ways, in the days of the Lord Jesus, sought to keep the commandments, but not out of any love for God, just because they thought that by keeping those laws, they would earn their way to heaven. But they had broken the laws. And indeed, they didn't love God because they didn't love Christ. And we see then also here is a covenant. In Romans chapter 10, Moses uh, Paul says, Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. And God says, Ye therefore shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Here is the covenant. You're perfect, I'll take you to heaven. But there is none righteous. No, not one. In Ezekiel 20, verse 21, we read, Notwithstanding, the children rebelled against me, 
They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbaths. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. You see, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. These are the words which, again, the Apostle Paul, he says, I have concluded and I have proved that both the Jews and the Gentiles, we are all under sin. We are all sinners. We have a responsibility to walk in perfection, but there is not one who is able to walk in perfection. Isaiah, later on in his book, writes that God looked upon man to see if there was a man who could stand in the gap, but he found none. There was none righteous in all the earth. So he took salvation to himself. And this is the amount of responsibility. We have a responsibility to love God, a responsibility to love our neighbor as ourselves. But we have all failed in that responsibility. That great mount, the mount upon which the very presence of God came, and the cloud came upon it. And there were thunderings and lightnings and a voice from the cloud. So much as to say that the people in, uh, in uh, Exodus cried out saying, Moses, you speak to us, but let not God speak to us. Because it was so fearful to hear the voice of God from the mount. That's the mount which so, so many people say, well, I'm just a good person. I will earn my way to heaven. But it's an amount of responsibility and we will be held responsible. The second mount which I want to draw your attention to is found in the New Testament in Mark's Gospel, in Matthew's Gospel too. But Mark's Gospel is where we will go, Mark and chapter 9. Mark's Gospel and chapter 9. begins on page 995 it does come to my attention in the past that there are, they have more than one kind of bible and so that the number is not necessarily uh, correct but 995 is what i have here so mark and chapter 9 and reading from verse 2 we read after six days jesus taketh with him peter and james and john and leadeth them up into a high mountain apart by themselves and he was transfigured before them and his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. But he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. And suddenly when they looked around about, they saw no man anymore, save Jesus only with themselves. So they go up into a high mountain, what we know as the Mount of Transfiguration. And what do we find here in this Mount of Revelation? There's the revelation of the glory of Christ and of who he is. It's only shown to three. Uh, it uh, puzzled me and I was thinking about the, uh, the fact that the, one of the first disciples to die in actual fact was James who was one of those who was in the mount 
And it seems a strange thing uh, that the Lord would allow James to be taken from the midst. Maybe there's a significance uh, to that as well. Uh, But we're not going to that just now. But the first thing we see here is the glory of Christ. The vision of Christ in his glory. He was transfigured. He was changed. He was metamorphosized, which is pretty much the Greek word which is used there. And they see his glory. He's transfigured before him, before them, Matthew 17, 2. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. They are seeing something of the glory of the kingdom. They are seeing something of the glory of God, of what the glory was, which he had with the Father before the earth was, as we read of in, uh, in John chapter 17. So we see this vision of the glory of Christ and, and Peter is there and John is there and both of them make mention of this in their epistles that they saw his glory. John in the gospel says we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And Peter speaks of seeing the glory uh, that he saw it of him in the mount. They never forgot what they saw there. And even though they were in such an amazement that, uh, and, and in fear, uh, nevertheless, it stayed with them to the end of their lives. The Mount of Revelation then reveals Christ, who he is. It reveals his deity. It reveals his glory. It reveals that he is the one whom the Father is with. And we see also this visitation. Both Moses and Elijah Uh, had met with the eternal son before and interestingly enough they had both met him in a mountain and indeed they both met him in the same mountain we read of Moses of course that he went to the top of this Mount Horeb Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain that can confuse us Uh, sometimes we read of Mount Horeb uh, as we do in Deuteronomy But in Exodus, it's called Mount Sinai. But it's the same mountain. It's the same range. And Moses went up into Horeb. But we read also of Elijah, that Elijah went up into Horeb. You know the story of Elijah, how that he uh, had prayed that it might not rain upon the earth. And it rained not for the space of three and a half years, James tells us. And uh, in the third year, the rain came, uh, we read in Kings. But after that, as he escaped from Ahab and Jezebel he escaped and he ran and he was fearful for his life and he went to the mountain of God he went to Horeb and as he goes up into that mountain uh, it is there that God speaks to him now I I have a a theory again I I don't know whether this is true or not I always like to make sure that you realize that this is not uh, uh, theological doctrine but just a just a theory just a thought which came to my mind I wonder whether what they saw in their vision was to see through time to when Jesus was testifying to Moses in the mount. And when Jesus spoke to Elijah in that same mount. Because they both heard the voice of God speaking to them audibly at at those times. And here Jesus in the Mount of Transfiguration. He uh, speaks with Moses and Elijah, these two mighty men. Both of them were meek men. Both of them were mighty, powerful men. And yet 
they knew how to control themselves. They knew how to hold back. And God said, concerning the children of Israel and their sin, let me destroy them. Moses said, no, no, don't destroy them because they will say that you have brought them out of the land of Egypt just simply to destroy them. But he seeks to pray for them. And we know that Moses was a man who had great power and nevertheless was able to hold that power. Elijah, too, was a man of mighty power, and yet he was able to hold that power. Here they are, these meek men in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the revelation here, the revelation, first of all, is the obligation of Moses. The obligation of Moses. And that obligation was for the keeping of the law. But then also we see Elijah, and it's the oblation of Elijah. It is Elijah who goes up into Mount Carmel. It is Elijah that there in Mount Carmel challenges the prophets of Baal and says, let us call upon our gods and the God that answers by fire, let him be God. And so the the prophets of Baal take their oxen and they set about uh, an altar and they offer the oxen upon the altar and they spend the day and they spend the day uh, crying out to their God to send fire from heaven. And they cut themselves and they bleed upon the altar and they seek to have that fire fall, but nothing happens. And then Elijah, about the time of the evening sacrifice, brings his offering, builds again the temple, uh, the, the altar of God, and he sets the, uh, the uh, offering there and cries to God. First of all, it's covered with water. And that water is brought and put upon that uh, offering and in a, in a ditch around it also. And he cries out to God and God sends fire from heaven to consume the offering. Now there are interesting things here. Because when God gave the commandments, he didn't just give commandments saying, thou shalt not. But he also said, when you do, here is the commandment of an offering. Here is the commandment to take the, the uh, blood of of uh, lambs and the blood of goats and the the blood of bullocks and I will accept those things on your behalf looking forward to the coming of Jesus Christ and these two who come here one with the law who sets forth the offerings and the other with an offering uh, which cleanses and, and brings the people to recognize who the God of heaven is these two meet with Christ in this mount of revelation What is brought here is this wonderful uh, word which which, uh, David speaks, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The truth and the righteousness, the law of God and the mercy and the peace, the grace of God are brought together and they are brought together in Christ. And God speaks from heaven and he says this is my beloved son hear him hear him this is the gospel it is through christ that he has spoken to us it is through christ that he says there is salvation oh you've broken the law you've come short of the glory of god but there is an offering an offering which is acceptable by to me an offering which i have set up an offering even the lamb of god whom i have sent and he is acceptable to me he is my beloved son hear him amount of revelation revelation of a gospel of a gospel and then finally the mount of reconciliation this we find in luke's gospel 
and in chapter 23. Luke's Gospel in chapter 23. Luke 23, uh, page 1045, 1045. Luke 23, and in verse 33, uh, we read of the coming of the Lord Jesus to be crucified. So Luke 23 and verse 33, uh, we read there. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, forgive them, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ, the chosen one of God. And here is Christ then on this Mount of Reconciliation. It's interesting, it's often uh, called amongst Christians Mount Calvary, uh, but it's never called Mount Calvary in the Bible. But it was a place uh, which seems to be high, uh, as uh, as it is seen upon those hills of Jerusalem. But a mount of reconciliation. And there was a reckon- reckoning there. The standard of the law from that first mount of responsibility. The standard of the law. Christ accepts it. Christ comes into the world. Uh, he is born of a woman, made under the law, as Paul writes. He accepts the law and he keeps the law. And he, there is none who can find anything wrong with him. Even the, the, the Jews who accused him, uh, they accuse him of saying that he is the son of God. But he was the son of God. So there was no actual breach of any law there. And uh, they accused him of blasphemy. But what he said was nothing less than the truth. There was no sin found in him. Here is a person who has accepted the standard And he has kept that standard. We read here uh, concerning him that he saved others himself. He he cannot save. He saved others. And in this reckoning, he takes the standard and he keeps it. He he, He takes the reckoning upon himself. See, the reckoning, if we carry that reckoning, the reckoning of breaking the law is death. The wages of sin is death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But Christ takes that for us. It has been pointed to in that mount of revelation. It was pointed to even in that mount of of responsibility. And Jesus Christ comes into the world to bear the wrath of God upon himself for us. The shortfall of the standard in our part. Well, some will say, well, my life's been pretty good. There are people worse than me. There are people who have committed all kinds of crimes. They have perhaps murdered. Uh, perhaps they have, they have done uh, the worst things that can be done upon the face of this earth. And my life well, has not been too bad. I'm pretty good. I'm a good person. But the Bible tells us that we have come short of the standard. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is infinite. So whether I have come short because I am the worst sinner in the world... I have come short infinitely of the glory of God. Or whether I have fallen short being the best of man can be in this world. A yet a sinner. I have come short of the glory of God. How far short of the glory of God have I come? I have come infinitely short of the glory of God. There is no difference. 
Because the infinity between my standard and God's standard is that which must be breached, uh, which must be overcome. And who can overcome such a breach? Who can overcome such a gap but the infinite one? It is only Christ. There is no man who can uh, fill the gap of infinity. There is no man who is able to make up the breach that we have caused between us and God. It is Christ alone. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. There is a reckoning to be had here upon this Mount Calvary, upon this hill upon which Christ is to be crucified. There is a redemption also. And the Saviour's empathy for us, that he comes into this world and he is tempted in all points like as we are. Hebrews 4.15 For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted or tried like as we are, yet without sin. He understands what it is to be tired. He understands what it is to be hurt. He understands what it is to be rejected. He understands all of the emotions that we go through in this world because his humanity was a real humanity. He was a part with us. He walked with us. He wept with us. And he rejoiced with us. And all of these things, he understands our frailty. And he understands our fear. You would think of concerning Christ that there was surely no fear. Being God, he knew what the future would be. He even told the disciples that he must be delivered up into the hands of wicked men and that he must, that he must die. He knew all of these things were coming. Nevertheless, he understands fear. Fear is one of the greatest things, isn't it, in our lives. Fear can overcome us in all kinds of situations. Fear is often worse, far worse than the actuality. The fear of a cancer, the fear of some disease, the fear of what the future might bring. And yet when those things come about, if they come about, then we deal with them. But fear. We read in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7, who in the days of his flesh when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. Jesus Christ understands fear. I was interested, we've been reading through the, uh, through the uh, Gospels, uh, my wife and I, and I was interested to see in, in one of those uh, um, accounts how that when Jesus was uh, in Gethsemane, And he was praying, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood and crying unto the Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. It wasn't just the cup. It wasn't the cup of of dying on the cross. But it was, let this hour pass from me. It was the fear of the cross which he sought. It was the fear of the cross which he wanted to go past. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. What did he say to Judas? If you know your Bibles, you know the answer to that. He said to Judas, what thou doest, do quickly, do quickly. And yet the time passed and he went forth to pray. And he went through those same three disciples and he prayed before the Lord, let this cup pass from me. The cup of death, I don't think so. The cup of fear, I think, was what was upon him at that point. And he comes back to the disciples and the disciples are sleeping. And he says to them, could you not watch with me one hour? What is the thing that helps us most when we are fearful? But to have somebody with us. 
Or we like to have someone with us. To go alone into a fearful situation is a hard thing. But they weren't ready to watch with him. He goes back a second time and he prays the same thing. And then he comes back to them. And then he goes away a third time. It is stretched out. And the fear which is there upon him as he's going to the cross. The fear of death. Because he had never, he had never suffered death before. And for us all, of course, death is a fearful thing. We read in uh, the second chapter of Hebrews uh, that he uh, has delivered those who all their lifetime uh, were uh, subject to fear of death. The fear. He understands your fear. And he understands our forfeiture. He understands that mankind has forfeited the presence of God. He has forfeited the joy of God. He has forfeited the very palace of God and the presence of God. There upon the cross of Calvary, in Mark 15, 34, it says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He understands what our situation is. He understands what we are facing. He understands we are facing what many people think of as the fires of hell. But really, the the terror of not being in the presence of God. Or indeed, we might even say the terror of being in the presence of God when God's uh, hand is against us. We are able to recite all the reasons that we came up with why we would not believe, why we would not trust him, why we followed the world and these things going over and over again find the words of James very interesting where it talks about the tongue being set on the fire of hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm dieth not he understands what we have forfeited as he dies upon the cross he understands our frailty he understands our fear he understands our forfeiture but the saviour is eligible he represents us as he goes to the cross he is a man He is born amongst us. He has walked amongst us. And he has come that he might bear that responsibility for us. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ came into the world to save you. He came to save you came to save me he came to save those who will hear his voice and will follow him and he bears the wrath of god upon himself and we see this ransom how that he pays for even the son of man jesus says came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many 1 timothy 2 6 who gave himself a ransom all to be testified in due time in the old testament a ransom for some situations could be paid for someone has fallen into debt or someone has committed some crime and they are to be sold perhaps into slavery for it and one of their uh, kinsmen is able to come forward and say i will pay the fine i will set them free and this is what christ has done for us before his father we don't owe it to the devil we owe it to god And Jesus Christ says, I will pay. I will pay. Ultimately, we realize that God is paying himself. But he is, isn't he? 
because there is nothing that we can do to pay back. What would a man give in exchange for his soul? What can we say to God? Well, I will give you this if you save me. I will give you this if you take me to heaven. If we own the whole world. God created it. It belongs to him. It's not ours. We can't give it to him and say, here, have the world that I might go and and dwell in glory. There is nothing that we can give. But God suffers for us. He sends forth his son who suffers the just for the unjust. The Bible says in Psalm 49, verse 7, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. But God himself pays the ransom. Jesus Christ paid the ransom. Jesus Christ died upon the cross of Calvary, bearing our sin, bearing our frailty, our fear, our forfeiture upon himself so that you can dwell in glory. And we see then finally a reconciliation. In 2 Corinthians 5.18 we read, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And here, as we preach the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for us, that we might be redeemed, that our sins might be forgiven, that we might be justified in his sight, that we might enter into glory and have all our sins expunged and forgotten and cast as far as the east is from the west and into the depths of the sea and any other uh, metaphor which might be used to say they will never be known again. All of these things are done through Jesus Christ that we might know his blessing, not only in glory, but today, that we might know days of heaven upon earth because he not only gives us heaven, but he gives us the Spirit of God. He dwells in our hearts and causes us to think concerning the law that it's not grievous. It is not grievous to us, but we desire it. Romans 5 and verse 10, we read, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. A life which he gives to us. A new life, Jesus said to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And that life, the Apostle Paul says, now I live the life which is in Christ. A new life. A life day by day given to him. A life which is eternal. A life which continues. A life which will take us into glory. And who knows what glory shall be. We see these glimpses of the kingdom a glimpse of Christ as his, his uh, demeanor and his, and his countenance is changed. But just these little glimpses uh, as if failed and just these little uh, sneak glimpses into the things which are set before us. But what glory will be to dwell in the presence of the Almighty. And we are saved also by his life because Christ is risen from the dead. He has risen and he has ascended into heaven. And there, as our great high priest, he sits at the right hand of God and ever lives to make intercession for us. Not only does he die for his people, but he makes sure that that redemption is applied to all of his. And tonight, the gospel, the good news is that Christ died for sinners. And if you can say in this service tonight, well, I'm a sinner, then you can also say, Christ died for me. 
and you're able to come to him and say, Lord, I need this salvation. I need to be redeemed. Please cleanse me. Accept Jesus Christ on my behalf. Come into my heart. Give me of this Holy Spirit that I might know the blessings of God and the joy of the Lord in my soul, that I might be renewed, born again, and washed from my iniquity. These things are set before us. And he has said, Whosoever cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Here is the cast iron guarantee of the scripture. Oh, come tonight and trust in him. Believe in him. Who is the God of the mountains, the God of the valleys, the God of this world, the God of eternity, and who has sent forth Christ Jesus that we might enjoy him and all things in him.